Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. We are in uh, Acts chapter 18 today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there. Um, I'm going to be jumping around in the text today because I think there's, and I want to be making some observations of what we see there because I think there's something really significant. Um, One of the things that I've been working through as of late is this whole idea that we have in the church of kind of looking at different heroes of the faith. Um, I've concluded, I don't know where you are, but I've concluded that there are no such things as heroes of the faith. Um, And here's why I say that. Because no one in scripture is kind of that larger than life or has everything all together. In fact, most, some of the most remembered or recognized heroes are people who made some of the worst decisions and often just want to quit. I mean, think about this for a second. Abraham made a great decision by lying about Sarah, saying she was his sister. Uh, Moses, who was so done with the Israelites, he ended up basically infringing on and and, and stealing God's glory. David, like, I don't know where I even need to start with David. Like, lots of really bad decisions. Uh, Peter, who who basically said, Jesus, like, I think this is a dead end with you, but I don't know where to go because I don't have anywhere else to go. Almost like not even knowing if if there's even any hope with Jesus. And today, I think we see a moment where Paul gets to a place of frustration and pain and grief where he just wants to quit. Um, here's, here's what's interesting. The people we see in biblical history are people who were equally subject to sin and human fragility of their flesh and of their minds They too struggled with being filled with the Spirit versus being filled more with themselves every single day. And I've concluded that the only, there is one hero in Scripture, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the only hero. (laughs) There's no one else who's a hero. Just Jesus. And he was, he was, he, he, that's who he is. And the good news is that Jesus actually uses people who are not hero material. So, so what's really cool is, is that if you recognize, you're kind of like, I'm not a hero. Well, good news for you because Jesus uses people who are not heroes. And also good news, Jesus also chooses to use graciously people who think they are heroes too. So that's good news for you if you kind of are like, oh, I'm, no, I'm a hero. But, but, but he uses you too. Like he uses anyone. And, and the reality is that it is his presence and power that he grants to those who obediently surrender themselves to his mission. And that's who he uses. Uh, years ago, some of you are familiar, uh, Second World War, uh, Winston Churchill's famous, really short speech um, I'm a fan of famous short speeches. Uh, Never give in, never give in, never, 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 never. I think in a lot of ways we could stand to hear that today. And in fact, I think in some ways 
not in the same words, but that's kind of what happens in this passage in Acts chapter 18 with Paul, Paul today. Um, I have this theory. It's my theory, so I think it's accurate. You may not think it's accurate, but I think it is. And I think if you're smart, you'll jump on. But that's up to you. Uh, I have this theory about the pandemic, that in the pandemic, what happened was we as a culture realized how easy it is to live life having given up, not trying anymore. Like at some point in the pandemic, people stopped trying to be the best version of themselves and kind of went to, I'm just gonna be the least difficult version of myself for me, much more difficult for others, but least difficult for me. And that's what I'm gonna kind of like double down on. And so we found in the pandemic that not trying is really easy. And I think what happened was that because we've now experienced the ease and the convenience of not trying, I think a lot of our culture on this side of the pandemic is still at that place of not trying anymore. I think that's why we have so many issues in our world. Now, I believe that there are a lot of people who've heard Jesus and seen what he's revealed and are far beyond what they were before the pandemic and and they are more like Jesus than they ever have before. But I think in general, in our culture, what we experience, what we're experiencing today, the continued issues are that people have kind of given up and said, yeah, nope, this is this is me. This is what you get. Because it's easy and convenient for me to be there. And so I think as a society we've gotten to a place of, of kind of giving up. But I also think that's understandable. I mean, maybe it's not in this context, but, but I would guess that all of us in this room have wanted to give in or quit or give up at some point because things are hard. I mean, it might be in this kind of small area that you've been, been wanted to give up or this kind of big area that you've wanted to give up. Sometimes I think we want to either give up or just we want things to be different because life is just too hard, it's too frustrating, it's too painful. I was talking with a friend yesterday who, as yesterday morning, he was at that point and he was asking legitimate and hard questions. Like he just wanted to give up. Um, in fact, he, he asked the question, he said, maybe God wasn't for me all this time and I've just been deceived and God's actually punishing me. And he just wanted to give up. And I think sometimes the stuff that we experience in life, I don't blame people for wanting to give up. But I think God has something to say about that. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in, again, Acts chapter 18. We're gonna look at verses one through 23. I'm not gonna actually read through all the verses. I would love for you later on today, once we talk about some of these observations and some of the things that we see in this text, I would love for you to go back and read Acts chapter 18, one through 23, and let the Spirit speak through maybe some things that maybe your eyes have been opened up to today. I want to do read, I do want to read two verses in this passage that I think are, are, are actually the linchpin of everything else in this passage. And that's verses nine and 10. Acts chapter 18, verses nine and 10. And, and here's, 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 what, here's kind of the, the, the context. Paul is in Corinth. And like always, he goes to the synagogue, he preaches, things kind of go, eh, 
Some people listen, some people don't. He ends up with the Gentiles. He preaches the Gentiles. He's there. There's, there's tension. There's trauma. There's all kinds of things that happen. And then eventually he goes to another city. But verse nine is where Paul goes to sleep and Jesus comes to him in a vision. And so this is what happens. Verse nine. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. This is after he preaches in the synagogue and things go very poorly and he ends up leaving the synagogue and going to preach among the Gentiles. Now that's not unusual. That's happened over and over in Paul's ministry in Acts. What's, what is interesting and is unique is that up to this point, Jesus has not come to Paul in a vision after he's frustrated with the city that he's in. So to me, that, that suggests that there is something going on here that Paul is struggling with. And I think we see that in, in, in the narrative, in, in the words that even Paul uses. But here's the message that Jesus gives to Paul in this vision. Do not be afraid. Keep witnessing on my behalf because I'm with you. No one will attack to harm you for I have many people in this city who belong to me. So the command, he says, look, don't be afraid, be confident, be courageous. And at the same time, continue to be my witness. What I've, what I've asked you to do from the start, be my witness. But then he encourages him and he says, look, here's why you don't have to be afraid and here's why you continue, continue speaking and witnessing on my behalf, giving testimony of what I have done and who I am in my gospel. He says, because I'm with you. He says, no one can harm you and there are others out there who belong to me and who are with you. Now those encouragements, I totally get the I'm with you. I totally get there's others out there, even though sometimes we feel like there aren't, but there are. It's that one where he says, no one will attack you or harm you that I think we're gonna have to unpack a little bit. <laughs> because we know from experience and from scripture that just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean everything goes well and everything's perfect. But Paul, like us, I think there's a moment where he wanted to quit, to give up, not to do this hard thing anymore on the mission that Jesus had him on. But I think it's important to like, not just say, well, Paul's, you know, Paul's, Throwing in the towel, he's, he's maybe not, you know, he's just not very perseverant. He's, he's, he's giving up too early. Let's just review what Paul, why Jesus probably needed to appear to Paul in a vision at this point in his ministry. In chapter nine, after Jesus visits Paul in a vision on the road to Damascus where he says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? In chapter nine, after he meets Jesus, we catch up with Paul and in, in chapter nine, there's not one, but two plots of people to kill him. So he escapes with his life after two plots to kill him. In chapter 13, he's contradicted, maligned, persecuted, and driven out of a city by the Jews because they hate him. In chapter 14, the Jews turn the crowd against him and then they get the crowd and they try to stone him. They're unsuccessful at that point, but later on, they actually try to stone him again and they do and they leave him for dead. 
And then later in chapter 16, he is beaten and imprisoned in the city that he's bringing the gospel to. And then in chapter 17, which we just finished off last week, he is forced to flee from not one, but three different cities. (laughs) I probably would have quit much earlier than Paul did. (laughs) Like, I don't, you don't, I get the message. Like, I don't blame Paul for being frustrated and saying, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm done with you. (laughs) Like, enough. I've talked to you people enough and you've tried to kill me. You've stoned me. You run me out at every point. You turn me into the authorities and claim false things about me. I've gotten beaten. I've been in jail. I've been run out of city after city. I'm done with you. I I cannot blame Paul for maybe feeling that way. He had compelling reasons to quit, I think. Like, I don't know that I would last through all of that. So here's, here's where I get the idea that, that maybe Paul was ready to quit. In verse four, in verse four, he's in the synagogue. And it says this, and he reasoned in the synagogue in Corinth every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, this is day after day after day. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So this isn't completely unusual that he goes into the synagogue in each city and then after uh, there's some success, but then after the the Jewish leaders start to make a fuss, he leaves the synagogue and goes into, into the city and preaches to the Gentiles. But it feels like he's escalated a little bit here. He said, look, I'm done with you. Your blood is on your own hands. I'm innocent. I'm gonna no longer talk to you and I'm gonna go to the Gentiles. Like that does feel like he's shutting a door. He's saying, we're done with you. I'm done with you. I've had enough. Everywhere I go, you people, you people like malign me, you persecute me, you do all this stuff. I'm, I'm done with you. And so it sounds a little bit like, I mean, part of it feels legitimate because Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, but that doesn't mean that he was not a witness to the Jews. In fact, his witness and testimony to the Jews was huge throughout the New Testament church. And so if, if it's true that Paul is like, I'm done, I just need to be done, I'm done with you, I've done everything I can do, there's nothing else I can do, I'm just done with the Jews. There are two, I mean, you hear that with Moses when he talks to Israel, he says, you stiff-necked people, like, I'm just done with you. And, and so he kind of goes back and forth with God. But if it's true that like he was at this point of being done with them, here's the thing. Paul is threatening an action that God will not follow. What I mean by that is this. God does not abandon, not out of frustration or anything else. The contrary is true with God because the abandoned find a home in God if they are surrendered and willing. That's the good news that God has for us is that he does not abandon, but he, he stays. See, here's the thing. That list that I read of Paul having reason to quit, think about God's list of reasons why he should quit on us. Like, you can't even compare those two lists. Like, those are not comparable. 
Yet God perseveres and keeps going and he keeps loving us and pursuing us and blessing us. He's never left or forsook us. And so, and so God says to Paul, after he leaves, he says, don't be afraid, but continue to be my witness. Here's what I love about how God works and what happens in this, in this narrative. So it says, it says, he says to them, he says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then verse seven, and he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Tetris Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Like, isn't that kind of funny in the way God works? I'm done with you, so you will never see me again unless you walk outside and see me next door. Like it's that moment of when you like you've met with you've met someone and in, in, in like out out in public and you talk and then you're like okay bye bye and then you walk the same direction and you're like this is odd, I, or or even worse that you've had an argument with someone and then you find out you're going the same direction, and and then you're like we're still here walking together and so here God God not only doesn't let Paul just forget about the Jews but he takes him to the house next door to minister. Like how, how great is that? And, and so he takes him to this house, this guy who, who loves Jesus and provides his house. And so even though he left the synagogue, he was literally next door to the synagogue. God did not turn away from Israel, nor did he give up on his chosen people. He set up camp in their backyard and continues to witness his Messiah every single day. Paul is invited by Jesus to be a co-laborer with God, joining God's process of loving and struggling with his own people. To this day, God continues to call his people home and he uses the church in the backyard of those who are lost and have rejected God to draw them toward Jesus. And so that's why Jesus says to Paul, after he's made this, he said, this is what I'm gonna do. And it, it is interesting to me that Jesus never responds in the past the way, the way Paul says, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the synagogue, I'm gonna go pe- teach the Gentiles. It seems like there's something different going on here. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid, but continue to be my witness. Continue to speak and don't be silent. And so in order to fear, have no fear, I think we need some encouragement. And so Jesus gives Paul three encouragements. And that first one is, I am with you. And I think this is super important that we recognize what Jesus is saying here. Do you know that the only promise in the whole of scripture that has any consequence is the presence of Jesus, is God's presence? Because here's the thing. Everything else that God has done or promises is contingent on his presence. If God is not in it, then there's, no, there's nothing gonna happen through it. If God is not present, then that takes away all the other things that God is doing. And so the presence of God is the, the, the point of which every other promise rises or falls. And so he says to, to Paul, Jesus says, I, prom- I, I promise you my presence. And I love, I love how there is this in the moment affirmation of God's presence with Paul. Because look at verse 12. 
So later, the Jews, after Paul has been preaching to the Gentiles, and there's still Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ, uh, the Jews take him before the proconsul, Galileo, and uh, they accuse him of, again, breaking laws, and they want him to be imprisoned or beaten or whatnot. And look what happens in verse 12. It says, but when Galileo was proconsul of Achia, the Jews made an attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, when Paul, this isn't Paul's first time being brought before authorities. Typically, when we read in Acts, Paul's brought before the authorities, what happens? He's, a, he's accused of something, and then he has to make his own defense, right? Every time, he has to make his defense. Look what happens here. As Jesus just said, I will be with you. Don't fear. It says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, this unbelieving proconsul, said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Hey, think about this for a second. Paul didn't even have to open his mouth and he was defended. God actually, in that moment, used Gallio, the proconsul, to take care of Paul in, in, in the presence of the Jews. And here's what's extraordinary about this. Not only did Paul not have to defend himself, but Gallio, in what he says here, in this moment, a very powerful, authoritative individual in Rome legitimizes the pursuit of the Jewish Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as a sect dispute, not a problem with Rome. Here's what that means. He just basically said, following Jesus is not a problem with the Roman Empire. It's a problem between your little in-group. And so don't bother us with it. It's legal as much as Judaism is legal because it's the same thing in my eyes. In other words, he just legalized following Jesus. <laughs> Talk about what the presence of God does in that moment. And, and to think about the fact that Paul had to be so encouraged in that moment because he, he basically just got not only defended but legitimized in front of the Jewish leaders. So Jesus also says to him, not only will I be with you, but he says, no harm will come to you. They will not attack you. Typically at this point, this is where the local authority says, do what you want with Paul. And then they beat Paul, they imprison him, they do all kinds of things, they try to stone him, they do all kinds of things. But in this situation, let's, let's see what happens. In verse 17, so the proconsul drives them from the tribunal and they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Paul's standing there, probably expecting to get beaten or get attacked. And the Jewish leaders go and beat the Sosthenes, who's the leader of the Jewish synagogue. Probably because they felt he failed in making a strong enough case against what Paul was doing. And so they're punishing him for kind of dropping the ball on his watch. 
Now, I would imagine Paul had some tension in that moment, thinking that this guy Sosthenes is getting beaten. But I'll be honest, if I'm Paul, if Paul is like my maturity level, I'm like, thank God they're beating someone else for once. I mean, just I, that's gonna be me in that context. I don't know about you. Maybe you're better, way better than I, and you're kind of like, no, I'll, I'll take Sosthenes beating, but not me. So, so here, here, in this moment where Paul is used to being harmed, he's not being harmed at this point. And so then, and here's, here's the, the struggle that I have with this though. God doesn't always keep us from harm, does he? In fact, the list of things that Paul experienced up to this point and the list of things that are coming from the rest of Acts that Paul experiences, God does not keep him from harm all the time. Sometimes God keeps us from harm, other times he doesn't. And I don't claim to understand how that works, but I do trust God and we see this played out in Paul's life. Like I just had a, real, a very real struggle yesterday trying to navigate this whole idea. God says the righteous have find rest in me, obey and things will go well, but, but things aren't going well. Why? I don't know. But I do think this no harm will come to you can be true in the present physical reality, but I think there is a deeper, more significant reality that no harm can come that Jesus is talking about in his vision with Paul. There's two mentalities that are very similar, that, that have very similar consequences, but very different ways they get to those consequences. Two people who will do almost anything. They're not afraid of anything. They don't run from anything. Nothing can stop them. Nothing stands in front of them. And one of those kinds of people is someone who has nothing left to lose. <laughs> like somebody who's lost everything and there is nothing left for them to lose. Those people make decisions and they go through things. Nothing's gonna stop. They're not afraid of anything because what do I have less to lose, Right? But there's another group of people who are kind of like that, but they come from a very different place. And that is those who recognize that there's nothing that can be taken from them. You see how that is different? And here's what I want us to understand that Jesus does. No one can take what Jesus has already secured for you and I. No one can take what Jesus has already secured. You see, Paul, you and I cannot lose what Jesus has secured. We fall into that category of living our lives with the mentality that there is nothing that can be taken that Jesus has already promised us or secured in our lives. No harm can come to our adoption as daughters and sons of God. No harm can... No one can harm our character in which Christ has transformed us into. People can say stuff about us, but if Jesus has formed something in us and we are faithful to him, no one can take that character away from us. 
No one can harm what is prepared for us in our inheritance. The Holy Spirit indwelling us is a guarantee of that inheritance that cannot be shaken or taken by anyone, whether human or spiritual. No harm can come to our bodies that can't be resurrected. Our bodies naturally deteriorate and sometimes what people do to our bodies make them deteriorate faster. But here's the thing, nothing can happen to our bodies when we are in Christ that cannot be resurrected or restored and renewed. In fact, to a point that it is better than, at your best, it will be better than that. And so there are some things that we need to recognize in this life that cannot be taken away from us and no harm will ever come to those things. The whole of scripture looks toward the coming of Jesus, not necessarily the first coming, but the second coming. The first coming is what secures our salvation and forgiveness. It is the second coming that Jesus makes all things right. And scripture also witnesses to us that our lives here are at most a mist. And so all of those things that we experience in this life, even though it's so hard to wrap our heads around, are temporary. And what's important cannot be stolen or taken. And so Jesus, the final thing he says in the vision with Paul, he says this, he says that there are many others in the city who who love me and follow me. In other words, there are many others who are with you. You're not alone. Like Elijah who ran to the mountains and said, God, I am the last of my kind. I am alone. There's no one else, even though God did have others. And he says the same thing to Paul. No, there's others here in your midst who belong to me. And and let me just give you the example, both Jews and Gentiles, the very people who Paul gave up on in the synagogue were some of the people who were actually coming to Christ. Look at at verse verse two and three. When he gets to Corinth, he says, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded that all the Jews leave Rome. And when he went to see them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade and then he went into the synagogue. So here's a couple Jewish people who do follow Jesus and not only that, but they were hospitable and they allowed Paul to just come in, be, be part of their family and spread the gospel. Later, and this is, I think this is really significant. In verse eight, it says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So, so this guy, Sosthenes, who the Jews beat, was, was the second ruler after, he was the ruler after Christus because Christus completely failed the Jews by becoming a Jesus follower and his whole family accepted Christ. And so now they're out a synagogue ruler. So they replace him with Sosthenes who apparently can't convince the proconsul that Paul is a danger. But Crispus and his whole family comes to Christ. Now there's more to this that I think is fascinating. And I don't know if if you've ever come across this or noticed this. But Paul's in Corinth. He's giving up on the synagogue because they're just too difficult to work with. And Crispus becomes a Christian and his whole family. And then this guy Sosthenes becomes the leader of the synagogue. And he is now at odds with Paul. 
Paul writes two letters that we have to the church at Corinth. The first letter he wrote, 1 Corinthians, I want to read to you the first two verses of that letter. And I want you to figure out, I just want you to see what you think about this. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Did you catch that? Sosthenes became a Jesus follower. <laughs> like two Jewish synagogue rulers for Paul, none for the Jews. <laughs> like that did not go well, did it? <laughs> Sosthenes became a Jesus follower under Paul's ministry, the not first, but second Jewish synagogue ruler. Like, how awesome is that and how faithful is God that he would do that and show Paul in that moment, look, there are others, and they're not even the ones you think. It's, sure, a, 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 Aquila and Priscilla, sure, they came from Rome and they were believers, but guess what? The, the two Jewish synagogue leaders, they're my people too <laughs> because I have engaged them through your ministry in the synagogue. Not only Jews become Jesus followers, but, but Gentiles also. Titius Justice, who Paul goes to his house next door. He becomes a Jesus follower. It says that many Christians in verse eight, or many Corinthians believed and were baptized in verse eight. And then when he goes on to Ephesus, it says many became Jesus followers in Ephesus as well. See, God has not designed his family to live in isolation. As the psalmist says, God places the lonely in family. And so I love in this passage, in, in, in chapter 18, when Paul is at a low point, Jesus comes to him in a vision and says, don't be afraid. Keep witnessing on my behalf because I'm with you. No one will harm you. They can't take what I've secured. And thirdly, there are others who belong to me who, who will encourage you. They'll let you stay at their house. They'll offer their house for you to preach the good news. They'll support you when you're struggling. And so I, I think this message is so, so paramount for today in our lives. Don't fear, but continue to be my witnesses. Here's, I believe, what the Lord says to us this morning. He says, look, I have many people in the city, many you are going to reach, many whom I will draw to myself. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe with the culture around us and, and all of the bad news we get, do we actually believe that Jesus has others, he has his eye on in this city, that we are the conduit to bring them to Jesus, our neighbors, those who we work with? Do we believe that God has people in cities all over this globe that he's pursuing and, and it's those who belong to him who are called to draw those people to Jesus? Do we believe that? Because he says that. See, and the best way to draw people to Jesus is actually not to win a culture war, but to present them with a clear image of Jesus. And you know what that clear image of Jesus for me is? It is presenting Jesus as king of my life. That is the most powerful testimony we have because the hardest thing for a human being to do is to let someone else be the boss. 
And the world will respond when they see you and I living with Jesus as king and obeying faithfully what he calls us to do, even when it's hard. That's the most powerful testimony to the unbelieving world. You see, the story of Jesus, the gospel, can pierce any culture, no matter how bad, at any time, at any period, and it can break through any ideology of any idol that has been constructed by a society. Do we believe that? Because it's true. Jesus and his story has broken through all of those things before and it breaks through it today again. I just heard somebody talking about in Turkey, in their little underground church that can't advertise, can't market, doesn't have a 10-year strategic plan that they just baptized 14 people in their church in one week. There's churches around us that would be excited if they baptized 14 people in 10 years. See, the culture doesn't have to be permissive to let God work. God works through that. See, Jesus is with us. And, and, so, and so the problem is so often we weaken the gospel by packaging it with a gospel of the land rather than a gospel of the kingdom. And what I mean simply by that is this, that no matter where you're born, whether it's here in the US or it's in China or Israel or Afghanistan, the gospel that you hear also is a gospel that's connected with your land and the things that your culture moves in and takes over in the gospel. So, so like we were all born, we, most of us were born here and, and we heard the gospel here. And, and we found salvation and forgiveness and life in Christ, but also there's some things of the gospel of the land that have wormed their way in like individualism and I don't need other people. And I don't need to ask for other people. I can help other people, but I don't need to ask. And, and that's weaved its way into our gospel. And that's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel in the kingdom is you are weak <laughs> and you do need others. That's why God hasn't left us alone. Jesus is with us. We cannot lose what he has secured and we're not alone. And we're gonna do communion today as we close. But what I, what I want to do, what I want to do as we do communion, before we do communion is this. I actually believe that the message Jesus brought to Paul is a message that we desperately need. And maybe it's just me. I'll be honest, I regularly want to quit everything. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but maybe this last week you've, you wanted to quit. You were hearing the voices in your head and you were like, I, I just want to, I want to be done with this. Maybe that wasn't your last week, but maybe this Wednesday that's going to happen. <laughs> so here's what I, I want to do. I want to give an invitation and I want to ask you, if you are in that place where you're just like, man, it is so hard and I'm so tempted to quit. Following Jesus is hard. Obeying Jesus is hard. I just want to slip into that place where I don't have to try that hard and be comfortable. And it's just so much work. And you're at a place where you're just like, I just want this to be done. I want to live life easy. I mean, we're just struggling with wanting to quit. 
I wanna invite you to come forward up here and then I want us to gather around as a church family and pray for each other. So right now, if you're here in this room and you're kinda like, yeah, that describes me, I have wanted to quit. I go up and down. I need to hear Jesus say, don't fear. Keep being my witness. I'm with you. I've secured you. And there are others. So right now, if that's you, if you're kind of like, man, I've got things that God's asking, but I just want to quit, come forward. Just come up here. Because it's hard. Just so you know, in my mind, I'm down there. because it's like a roller coaster for me that I just sometimes think it's too hard to really follow Jesus. So for those of you who've come down here, I just really appreciate that. And church family, I want us to come and surround those people and pray for them. Because coming together on Sundays is not just an opportunity to come together and sit. It is an opportunity to participate together and see a visual of how the family of God works and lives. And so just take the next minute or two and just pray for the people that you are around and I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna take communion together and we can all stay where we are and if you forgot your communion cup, there's some cups right here, but, but let's pray for each other right now. Jesus, as people are praying right now. I thank you that you still speak today. And I pray for every person, whether they came forward or not, and every person that just is struggling with how hard it is to surrender daily and follow you and take up their cross. God, I pray that you will remind them in this moment that they are surrounded not by heroes, but they are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So Father, I pray that you would give us perseverance and endurance and God, give us the encouragement that you give Paul. God, that you are with us and that no one can take that which you have secured and that there are others both here who love you and there are others out there who have yet to love you based on our testimony that you are pursuing and preparing. So God, give us strength in our weakness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's do communion. If you don't have your cup with you, there's some up here. But I think it's even cool to do communion even just standing together up here together because that's what communion is. It's communing with God and one another.
probably a terrible dad joke about communion is uh, Sherry shared this with me yesterday. The disciples and Jesus walked into the restaurant and said, table for 26. And they're like, that's not that many of you. And they said, we just want to all sit on one side. But, um, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> when Jesus was there in the upper room with his disciples together, he said, this is what I'm doing for you so that you will never be alone, so that I will always be with you. And in doing what he did, he secured things that can never be taken away. And he secured it for his family. So he said, when you take this, when you gather together, take this bread, and when you eat it, remember my sacrifice. Let's take that together. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. It's my covenant with you that I gave my, I'm giving my life so that your sins can be covered. You don't have to be a hero. And that I love you and I'm for you and I'm calling you to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. So let's take the cup together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you've done and what you continue to do. We love you, and in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.